Turn to Psalm 39 if you would, if you're not already there, Psalm 39. ever find yourself about to say something and you catch yourself and you don't say it? Sort of something that's, that's eating you up inside and you feel like maybe you really ought to say something but you think, you know what, this is probably not the thing that I should say. David finds himself in a similar circumstance and uh, we actually read through this earlier in the week because I was uh, forgetting that Kids for Christ has one more evening, and so I was talking with the kids trying to figure out which phrases in the psalm wouldn't make sense to them so we could explain those a little bit better as we went through it. And uh, Kelly said, this psalm reminds me a lot of Ecclesiastes, and it does. And so the title may um, remind you a little bit of Ecclesiastes in that it's perhaps a little bit puzzling, but hopefully as we get through this, you'll understand why I put the title as Life is Short, So Don't Speak, But Speak. We see the not speaking in the first part here. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained from good and my sorrow grew worse. My, hot was, my heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. I spoke with my tongue. David starts out saying, I did not speak. And as we think about why he did not speak, the first reason he doesn't speak is he did not wish to sit in with his tongue. And then he says, who was he concerned about sinning? Maybe not so much toward, but in the presence of, it was the wicked. And so what was it that kept David from speaking? In the larger context of the passage, the complaint that he has against God is the sort of thing that I think he was hesitant even to speak in the presence of God's people and particularly was hesitant to speak in the presence of the wicked because the wicked would hear what he was saying and they would potentially say, yeah, we agree with you in a sort of way that was blaspheming to God. And so he was very careful not to speak, not to speak the things that he was concerned about, particularly about the shortness of life in the presence of wicked in such a way that would lead them to question God further. And yet this was something that was so wrapped up in his heart and mind, so it said that he was musing, the fire burned, my heart was hot within me. Sometimes there's something that's just so controlling in your thoughts and, and such a focus of attention in your life, they feel like you have to say it. And so the person that we ought to say it to, obviously in a reverent and an appropriate way, is God. And what was it that he said to God? Verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end and the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. What was David's complaint, concern, the thing that he wanted to say in God's presence, this is your life. From here to here. And it's done. And we saw that in Ecclesiastes repeatedly. Solomon emphasized that there and probably learned some of it from David. 
Life is short. Now there is an appropriate way to say that to a lost person. Life is short. Repent. But what David was focused on was not so much life is short, so repent. But here he's focused on the fact that life is short. And like Solomon would later say, it is therefore puzzling and insubstantial and hard to grasp. And we ask God why about it. And in the context of what we read, the update on the Hamricks, those are the sorts of questions we ask. When things arise in our lives to remind us that life is short, that life is beyond our ability to understand and control and all of those sorts of things, the only person ultimately who we can bring that to is God. Now we can certainly talk about it with other believers, and perhaps there's appropriate points to talk about it with unbelievers, but ultimately the person that we need to talk about it to is God. He continues in verse 6, Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses, though text supplies the word riches, and does not know who will gather them. Again, reminds us of Ecclesiastes. You spend your whole life gathering money. You have it for a little while. It's not nearly as important as we make it out to be. And when we're gone, we have no idea who's going to do what with it. We see our life as full of purpose and solid and real. And yet he says every man walks about as a phantom. I mean, essentially, he's saying we are dead men walking. But that's what it says in the Garden of Eden. God said that to Adam and Eve, right? Dying, you will die. And we say, you know, you've got however many good years, and then you hit the top of the hill, and then the roller coaster goes down. But the reality is, it starts here, and it trends down from the moment that we're born. Death is certain. Death comes upon us all. This is a reality of life in a world corrupted by sin and cursed by God. And, so, and David here, like Solomon would later say, says, God, help me to know my end. The extent of my days, let me know how transient, how fleeting, how short-lived I am. If you had one day to do everything that you're going to do, would you treat it differently than a Saturday when you had no obligations? Hopefully. And there's a balance here. It's not throw yourself into religious duties in such a way that you neglect everything else. People approached the return of Christ in that sort of wrong-headed way in the book of Thessalonians, and they were saying, we're going to sit here and wait for Jesus to come back. And everybody else was saying, no, you need to work if you're going to eat. Because that's what Paul told us to do. So we can't go over there to that extreme and say, we're just going to wait for Jesus to come back. But the extreme, we're usually not over there. We're usually over here where we're so consumed with everyday things of this life that we don't even think about the fact that Jesus is coming back. 
And while David doesn't use the phrase, Jesus is coming back, there's parallels for the Christian in thinking about that alongside life is short. So if you woke up every day, if in the middle of the day you thought about this, if before you, bed, you went to bed you thought about this, life is short, how would it change the way that you lived your life? Ironically, he says in verse 7, rest in the Lord, I'm sorry, we looked at that a few weeks ago. I should look at the, the next page here. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So ironically, the verse I started to read expresses the idea of the verse that I was supposed to read. And that is, despite the fact that we are supposed to pay attention to the fact that life is fleeting and short, and not to waste it. At the same time, the verse says, the solution to that wrong approach is not to throw ourselves in a sort of self-sufficient way of living that says, I'm going to make the most of every opportunity that I have for me because I can do it on my own. Instead, this verse says, and now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. My hope is not in the span of my life because it's short. My hope is not in riches because they're for a brief time and then they could be gone. My hope is in God. And in connection with our hope being in God, deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand. I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Speak to God about the brevity of life. Speak to God about the reality of your sin. But verse 9 says, in essence, David purposed not to speak to God in such a way that questioned God's purpose for his life. Why do I say that? He says, I become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand I am perishing. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. I don't know for sure, but there are definitely echoes of what happened in David's life following his sin with Bathsheba, with the death of his child, that I think have significant tie-ins to what he's saying here. Someone close to us dies, we think about life and death. We question why God does this or the other thing. We say, you know, maybe these things that I thought were really important like making money and gathering stuff to put on a shelf and, you know, loving a thing that rusts away in Michigan after the salt in the winters. Maybe those aren't the things I should be pouring my life into. And one response would be to go over here and to complain with anybody who will listen, life is terrible. It stinks and then you die. 
And David says, I can't do that. But David comes over here to God and speaks to God about those realities and says, God, help me to understand that life is short. Help me to understand why life is short. Help me to understand the foolishness of trusting in things that I can't trust in. My hope is in you. Lord, if any of this is due to my sin, and in certain cases it was clearly due to David's sin, the calamity that came upon him, there's this tension. I don't speak to you, God, blaming you for it, even though it's your hand that has carried it out because I know that it's my fault that this has taken place. And yet, as one of your people, I can appeal to you and say, forgive me and take this away from me. Particularly in, in light of the fact that my life is short. And God, you're up here, and I'm weak, and I don't have much, and it can soon be gone. God, show mercy to me. Now, God doesn't always bring suffering in our lives because of sin. But I think whether suffering comes in our lives because of sin or because of some other general purpose that God is accomplishing, such as our maturity, our sanctification, the spread of His gospel to other people, all of those sorts of things, I think the same sorts of things apply. There's a right... And there is a wrong way to speak of suffering. There is a way to speak of it that paints a picture of God that is God doesn't care, God doesn't love, God has done me wrong. And then there's a picture that says, God, I realize my life is short. I realize sometimes I spend it in pursuit of things that rot and fade and are stolen. I'm weak. I'm finite. You're strong. You're eternal. Sometimes I sin and I confess that before you, but I'm still one of your people. And when we have all of those perspectives on a particular circumstance of suffering in which we are going through, I think that we are speaking rightly to God. Not... God doesn't know what he's doing. God doesn't care. I don't know what's going on. And maybe he's not the sort of God he said he is. But a perspective that says, I'm still trusting you, God. I don't understand. It's not an accident. It's not like this took you by surprise. It is your hand that did this. And that's the thing that sometimes is so hard for us to to wrap our minds around why would God, if He is good and loving and powerful and all-knowing, why would something that to us seems bad and often, morally speaking, is bad, how can that happen in the life of someone who knows God? Here, David said the specific reason for his suffering was connected with iniquity or at least he acknowledged the possibility of iniquity in the context of his suffering. I said as before, that's not always the case. Look at verses 12 and 13. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. 
Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile before I depart and am no more. I say, wait a second, doesn't he want God to look upon him? But what he's saying is God is looking at him and um, seemingly pouring out judgment. And so he's saying, God, I cannot endure your gaze. Turn away from me. Spare me. Give me rest. Because if, if God does not spare him, David's like a tiny seedling in the ground, like an insect crawling across the pavement, like any number of things that when the sun beats down on them, they cannot endure it. They need rest. They need a cloud to pass by. They need relief from the burning heat. David is saying that same sort of thing. God, if you direct your focus, your gaze at me indefinitely, I will be consumed because I cannot resist you. I, I would be consumed by your power and your glory in light of my sinfulness. So God, hear my prayer. Don't be silent when I cry to you. Then to verse 12, I'm a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. This isn't my home. I belong with you. I'm one of your people. Turn your gaze of judgment away from me that I may smile before or so that or unless I depart and am no more. This is similar to what he says in other psalms. If, if you don't spare me, God, who's going to praise you from the dust? Same sort of idea here. So when things take place that we do not understand, when we reflect on the shortness and the puzzlingness and the confusingness of life. How do we talk about it? To whom do we talk about it? And what do we say? Don't go to the unbeliever and speak in such a way that borders on blaspheming God or encourages them to do that, even if that's not your intent. Be careful in the way that you speak about it to fellow believers, although we do not see it in this passage, for the same reasons. But do cry to God in a way that acknowledges the nature of the thing that you're struggling with, in a way that acknowledges the reality of your own sin, your own distractedness, all of the different things that any person who's being honest recognizes are a constant struggle in our lives. But appeal to God as one who belongs to Him, as one that He's shown mercy to in the past, as one that you wish Him to show mercy to again. Set in the context of the fact that <coughs> our hope is in Him. So because life is short, because your hope is in God, don't speak to the wicked wrongly about God. Speak to God rightly about the thing that you are struggling with and come to Him confidently that He will hear and answer your prayer. How might He answer that prayer? 
Paul was afflicted for seemingly no sin that we know of. And God said, my strength is enough for you. Some of those who were martyred cried to God, and those around them thought God did not hear them, and yet they were ushered into God's presence with glory. Some of them saw resurrections and miracles and other things like that. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11. And sometimes God hears and answers us through the normal, seemingly mundane, but but circumstances of life which can be difficult, which can be trying, which even in the midst of those things we need to seek His presence about. And so I can't tell you which way God is going to answer your prayer if you pray like this in a situation like this. What I can tell you is the sort of God who's listening. And a sort of God who's listening is a God who has not promised to explain every last detail to you, a God who has not promised to overlook your sin, but a God who has a relationship with his people that Romans 8 says nothing can come between. So when you pray out of struggle, do you pray to that sort of God? Let's close there.